This is so exciting. Questions and answers today on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, May the 14th, and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. Of course, every second Wednesday of the month, we do a question and answer lesson, which is what we're doing today. And we also did one this past Saturday. So if you missed that and you send a question in, uh, maybe your question got answered on Saturday. So make sure you go back and listen to Saturday's lesson as well. I also want to welcome Christina, as always, or not always, but uh, she's done the last two uh, question and answer sessions with us, and she's going to be reading for us again today. And before we get started, just one thing. If any of you are interested interested in this paper that I just wrote called Morality and Hell, Examining the Options of an All-Loving God. Uh, what was God to do with the lost? That's the, that's the topic of this booklet that we've got. And everybody who makes a tax-deductible donation is going to get one of these sent to them. So if that's something that you're interested in, uh, we examine uh, you know, several of God's options. He could have annihilated the lost. He could put the lost in purgatory. He could reincarnate. You know, we, we, did a, we looked at a whole bunch of different options in here and looked at the morality or the ethics of those options and compared them with the traditional view of an eternal conscious hell. So, um, you know, like I said in our last lesson, it wasn't the funnest thing to, to write about, but I thought it was kind of interesting. But let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson. Christina, what is our first question? Okay, our first question today comes from Alex. Alex writes, Hello, before I ask you the questions, I just wanted to say that your podcasts are great and inspiring and have helped me along my spiritual journey with God. You've been a blessing to me and have made me come from an atheist to a Christian. Thank you and the Lord for everything. My friend claims he is a Christian. However, he doesn't believe in the resurrection or really anything of the Christian faith. I was talking with him and we somehow got on the topic of Christianity and I said we all need God's forgiveness. However, he replied saying, no, I don't. I don't want it. I tried to show and tell him that this was why Christ died for us on the cross, but he wouldn't listen to me. I don't think he is a true Christian, and I would really like to talk to him about it and show him the truth. However, I don't know what to do. Please help me. Also, is it possible for God to still love and forgive a man like Adolf Hitler, who killed millions and millions of people? Like, let's say he survived after the war and was placed in jail, and while in jail he converted to Christianity. Would God and Jesus forgive him and love him? And if he died a Christian, would he go to heaven or hell for killing over 10 million people? Thank you for all the help. This question has really been bugging me. Well, Alex, uh, let me start out by just saying that I just feel blessed beyond measure to know that our ministry here at Bible Study Podcasts has had anything to do, has played any role at all in your decision to follow after Jesus. Uh, and thank you for letting me know. That is Wow, I, I tell you, uh, every podcast, you know, I've told you guys before, every podcast takes me about five hours to do total. And uh, considering that I do two a week and there are, you know, 52 weeks in a year, uh, it adds up to maybe a little bit more than 500 
hours of work per year, if I'm doing my math correctly. So uh, I'll say this, you know, knowing that just one person has been brought to Jesus because of what we're doing here makes every second of that work that I put into this ministry, man, feel more than, than worth the effort. So thank you for letting us know, Alex. And man, I feel blessed to know that, uh, that we've played a role in that. But anyway, on to your questions. Um, for your first question, as for your friend who claims to be a Christian but doesn't want to accept God's forgiveness, uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm not really sure why else someone would call themselves a Christian. Uh, being a Christian is more than just a cultural thing. It's uh, it's more than just a trend, uh, and it can't be just a thing where maybe somebody would say, well, I go to church because my parents make me or anything like that. My parents made me go to church until I was 14 years old or so, and, and I wasn't a Christian. I didn't accept Christ until I was 20. So a Christian is someone who, by definition, follows after Jesus, putting their faith in him as their means of receiving God's grace. So there are, uh, you know, there are several approaches that you might take with your friend. I get the impression that he doesn't like to be preached at, or he doesn't want to be preached at. And if that's the case, by all means, don't preach. Instead, try asking probing questions. If you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, he always asked questions, questions that were probing and and just really cut to the heart of the issue. Like, you know, some questions that you could ask would be, you know, why do you think all people have this propensity to do things that they know they shouldn't do? Or, um, what is it that makes anything important? Or what makes something morally right or wrong? Or if what you believe about either the here and now or about the afterlife was wrong, would you want to know? And actually, that last question is one of the best questions that you can probably ask. Because if they say yes, you've got your foot in the door and they've, they've actually let you you know, get in uh, with them. They, this is this is your moment where you can get in. So the moment they say yes, you know, I'd bring the gospel in. I'd say, you know, first of all, God made the earth and said it was very good. And that's from Genesis 1, of course. Uh, the second step is Romans chapter 3, 23, you know, says that all people are sinners. Uh, step 3, Romans 5 tells us that while we were still enemies of God, Jesus built a bridge between us and God. And step four, John one twelve says that to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Um, there's actually a, a great book that I would really recommend for you and for any of you who are interested in evangelism. And the name of this book is Share Jesus Without Fear by William Fay. And I picked this up the last year I was working in a casino in Vegas and got some really good pointers out of this. And it, it walks you through asking the questions, the probing questions and everything. So if you want to seriously study this, there are even workbooks for this book as well. But the book itself is a great resource for evangelism. And coming out in about uh, two or three months is a book called Conversational Evangelism, written by David and Norman Geisler. And that's one that I can't wait to, to read. I can't wait to pick that one up. I'm sure it's going to be good. And again, it's based on, you know, the fact that Jesus asked these questions. He would, you know, engage people in conversations and evangelize that way. So you also need to keep in mind that there is uh, nothing that you or anyone can say or do to get someone saved without the work of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit can't save somebody, then neither can I, neither can you, neither can anybody. All anyone can do is assist the Holy Spirit 
in the Holy Spirit's pre-conversion ministry. We can plant seeds, but the, the Holy Spirit has to water those seeds to make them grow. So really, if your friend is just completely hostile to the message of Jesus or to, to the gospel, the best thing you can do is pray for him. But we always uh, also have to be aware of the possibility of casting pearls before swine, as Jesus said. You know, if you've prayed and you've tried talking to him, you've tried, you know, breaking down the barriers that he's got and everything, and your friend still won't come around, there does come a time when you need to reel your line in and cast it into deeper waters. You know, I don't know if you've ever gone fishing or anything, but uh, I love fishing. I haven't been in a few years, but when I lived in Las Vegas, I used to go up to this lake fishing all the time. And there was one time I specifically remember going fishing with uh, a good friend of mine, and we saw a school of huge trout swimming right alongside the shoreline. I mean, it was just like two or three feet out into the lake. So, you know, here we are. We don't know what we have to do to catch them. We don't have a net. Uh, So we put our lines right in front of these fish. And they swam right past us, right past our bait. I mean, this was fresh bait. So we reeled in and we walked down and ahead of the fish again. And we tried it again. We dropped our lines right in front of the fish. And still, the fish didn't even seem to notice it. They swam right by our bait. And sometimes it's like that with the gospel as well. So keep that in mind. You know, there's not always something that we can do to convince somebody to uh, to receive salvation, to receive God's grace. So that's something just to keep in mind. But keep him in prayer, that's for sure. Uh, as for your second question about Adolf Hitler, well, again, this this all goes back to John one twelve, which we just said. You know, anyone who believes in Jesus becomes a child of God. The beautiful thing about God's grace is that nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves God's grace, but he gives it to us freely as, as we accept it. You know, because the worth of Jesus as God is infinite in value, it's sufficient. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to atone for any and every single sin that warrants the wrath of God. So if a person like Adolf Hitler truly had a change of heart, truly decided to become a Christian and live for Jesus, I am certain that he would have gone to heaven. He is, you know, no less deserving than me or anyone else in history of receiving God's grace. It's completely contrary to human nature to forgive someone who has done so much wrong. I realize that. But the greatest injustice, we have to remember this, the greatest injustice in human history was the execution of a man who was perfect and without sin. Yet, while he was being brutally murdered by being nailed into a piece of wood, he cried out for God the Father to forgive them. And he did this, he was put up there for you and me. He didn't have to do it. But thankfully he did. But why did he cry out for them to be forgiven? Well, the only sin that can't be forgiven is dying without Jesus. The blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, is indeed sufficient for forgiving 10 million murders because God's grace is only limited by our willingness to accept it or our lack thereof. So thanks for the question, Alex. God bless you. Thank you for for writing these in. And uh, never stop growing in your walk with Jesus. Thank you again for your questions. God bless you. What's our next question, Christina? Our next question comes from Jessica. Jessica asks, My question is about the following quote from the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 36 through 37, which says, But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. 
I'm wondering what exactly it means that you will be condemned and acquitted, and what exactly are careless words. Well, thank you, Jessica, for sending that question in. Uh, good question. Uh, to answer this, or to answer any question about what the Bible is saying in any particular verse or passage, the first thing you have to do is you have to establish the context. You know, to whom is Jesus speaking? Where is this taking place? What precedes uh, this verse? What comes before this verse? What comes after this verse? What does this verse say about God? What does this verse say about me? What would this verse have meant to the original audience to whom this was written? You know, those are the types of questions that you need to ask, you know, anytime Anytime we're reading the Bible, anytime we're, we're maybe confused or just reading for pleasure as well. But anyway, to answer this question, let's go ahead and take a look at what has just happened. So we need to, to turn back just a little bit in this passage. Jesus has just cast a demon out of a man, and the Pharisees have said that because Jesus has the power to do this, he must therefore be doing it by the power of Beelzebub, who was the ruler of the demons. Of course, this absolutely infuriated Jesus because they just said that the good that Jesus was doing could only be attributed to the king of the demons. So Jesus responds by giving them a little bit of a scolding, uh, starting in verse 33, saying, quote, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. In other words, if Jesus is a bad tree, he wouldn't be bearing good fruit, and what he just did was good. And this should have been obvious to the Pharisees. So what they said was careless because they didn't even take the time to think about what they were actually saying. So uh, anyway, continuing in uh, verse 34 here, we read, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak of what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And of course, those, uh, those last couple of verses were the verses that you had the question about. So the key here is that the mouth speaks from what is overflowing from the heart, according to Jesus. The Pharisees have just labeled a good act as evil because evil was overflowing from their hearts. They were evil. So how would they know what good is? Well, you know, on the flip side of that, if a person has righteousness in their heart, they will be speaking words of righteousness and they'll be able to recognize what is good. And remember from our Roman study that the word justify or acquit is the verb form of the noun righteous. So that's key also a little bit uh, to remember. But what Jesus is saying is that the words that a person says are sufficient for knowing what is in their heart, whether it's righteousness or it's evil. And that if God were only able to hear, just hypothetically, if God were only able to hear and couldn't see a person's actions, a person's words alone could be the basis for either their justification or their condemnation, because what they say gives such an accurate reflection of what's going on in the heart of a person. So I think that's what Jesus is trying to say there, and hopefully that clears it up a little bit. Of course, if you need clarification or anything, please feel free to email me. My email is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. But God bless you. Thank you so much for sending that question in, Jessica. Christina, what's our next question? Okay, our third question comes from Lexi. Lexi writes, 
I eat lunch at school with a bunch of different people. By that I mean atheists, gays, free souls, and other Christians too. So it's kind of expected that we get into debates about stuff. Well, one day we started talking about how my friend, let's call her Sue, was a vegetarian. Now, you have to understand that Sue was raised in the church and has come to my youth group many times, so I naturally assume that she was a vegetarian to be healthy and not for animal rights. To make a long story short, she believes that animals have souls and that they don't deserve to die because it is unfair to them. I told her that animals don't have souls and that God put them on earth for us, and the reason they don't have souls is because then we would be murderers of an innocent life. She told me to show her the verse that says that in the Bible, but all I found was when King Solomon was talking about the fate of animals and man in Ecclesiastes. I have heard a couple sermons about how animals don't have souls, so it must be true, but I just can't seem to find it. Okay, thank you for your question, Lexi. First of all, just because you hear it in a sermon doesn't mean it's true. Uh, Everything has to be tested against uh, the Word of God. Everything has to be tested against Scripture. So uh, if it makes sense in a sermon and they use biblical reference, you know, it's maybe more believable if they use biblical reference, but man, as many sermons as I hear these days that have no reference to the Bible at all, or which take the Bible completely out of context, uh, make sure that you aren't just taking somebody's word at face value, but make sure that uh, that it does line up with what Scripture says. So anyway, Lexi, you get major props from me for hanging out with such a huge variety of people and engaging in conversations with them. So way to be salt and light. You go. Anyway, uh, okay, so we're talking about animal rights here. Let's start by talking about the purpose that God gave animals, what he created them for, what, uh, what purpose God ordained animals for. In Genesis, we read that mankind was created in God's image. So uh, note that the Bible Bible never says that about animals. That's the key part here that we're going to be studying. Um, Secondly, God breathed the breath of life into Adam. Uh, And we know that animals do have the breath of life. Uh, It says that, you know, in the the flood narrative, for example, says that animals have the breath of life. But anyway, then um, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read that man was to rule or or have dominion over uh, the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creatures that move along. The ground, and then in Genesis chapter three verse twenty-one, we read that God makes clothing from animal skin for Adam and Eve. And this is, of course, immediately after they've sinned. You know, they've realized that they were uh, that they were naked, and they've tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. And uh, you know, so what God does is He kills an animal and He gives them uh, an animal skin to wear. So certainly this required that God kill an animal. We also know from throughout the book of just the book of Leviticus, just taking that book alone, we know that God commanded that certain animals should be killed as a sacrifice uh, to atone for sins. Can God do something that is unjust? Can God uh, command something that is unjust? Well, of course not. That goes against God's nature. God is the standard of morality. The reason we think anything is you know, right or wrong, ultimately is because the standard of right and wrong is found in God's nature. But, you know, God has not only killed an animal himself, but he commanded mankind to do the same thing. So that takes care of whether it's unfair to kill an animal or not. But as for whether or not they have souls, well, the Bible never says. You you know, you can search the Bible through and through, and the Bible never says whether or not they have souls. So we do know that the Bible... um, 
does not say that they will be resurrected, and it never says that they have a soul. But while there is um, mention of there being animals when God makes a new earth, in Revelation 21, there's no indication that there will be animal souls in heaven. But we do know what makes murder wrong. According to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, murdering a man is a sin because man is made in the image of God. So even if animals do have souls, they're not made in the image of God, and thus it's not murder, it's not, uh, it's not wrong or unjust to kill an animal. You also have to make a distinction between killing and murdering. Killing and murdering aren't the same thing. But um, anyway, with all that being said, I do think that we're supposed to respect animals since that's part of having dominion over them, and God wanted us to have dominion over them. Uh, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't kill them for food, but it does mean that we shouldn't be wasteful with them. But you know, God does indeed allow us to kill animals under the right uh, conditions and the right circumstances. But anyway, thank you so much for your question, Lexi, and God bless you, and good luck with your conversations with everybody. I really uh, respect you a lot for doing that. So God bless you. Christina, what's our last question? Okay, our last question comes from Amanda, and Amanda writes, I got into a discussion with someone about prayer once. I am a firm believer that when we call upon God, he will answer our prayers. I base this on the passage in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12, stating, Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, stating, Call to me, and I will answer you, and tell you great, unsearchable things you do not know. I see nowhere about a particular way in which we must pray. However, this young girl stated something different based upon John chapter 14, 13, stating, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. She believes firmly that any prayer that does not include the phrase in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus will not be answered by God, stating that it is simply an empty prayer that hits the ceiling and falls back down. I thought this was wrong and completely going against the verses in Jeremiah that say, when we call, God will answer. It doesn't say, when we call, God will answer, contingent upon a few things. I also noted Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. If we are not to be repetitive or believe that it is a particular phrase or series of words that will get our prayers answered, then isn't the belief of always saying in the name of Jesus falling in line with Matthew 6, 7's warning? I understand that our attitude should be in Christ, but does Scripture say if we lack that phrase in our prayers, they are not answered? I don't believe so, but I would love to hear what you say. Thank you, and may the peace of Christ be with you always. Well, as always, thank you for the question, Amanda. I appreciate you sending that in. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I agree with you. I think your friend is actually treading on some dangerously thin ice to think that the words in Jesus' name or in the name of Jesus give us uh, some ability or somehow give us the ability to get whatever we want as long as we include those words in our prayers. And some people have actually taken it to, to that extreme. But, of course, you know, we're probably all familiar with uh, Matthew chapter 9 when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. Uh, and I think it's particularly noteworthy that in the Lord's Prayer, or in the prayer of Jesus, uh, it's noteworthy that he doesn't teach them to add any words, uh, specific words. You know, there are no magic words to getting through to God that he specifically points out. And if those words are the, the key to unlocking the ear of God, I would definitely say that those are some very magic words. 
But, uh, you know, we say that we pray in the name of Jesus for the very reason you give, to remind ourselves that our attitude should be like that of Christ. The Bible tells us that there is one mediator between mankind and God, and that's Jesus. And Romans 5.1 tells us that it's because of Jesus that we have uh, access to God. So it's because of Jesus that we're able to come before God the Father with our requests and with our prayers. But, you know, if we're praying in the name of Jesus, it means that we're praying in accordance with his will. And his will is the same as God's will. Praying in the name of Jesus means praying for and desiring things that would bring glory and honor to God and and to Jesus. I mean, if you pray, uh, God, please give me a Ferrari in the name of Jesus, and that's not God's will, then putting the words in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name uh, won't magically make it God's will, and you you won't uh, you know make it magically come to be through those words. But Amanda, I would definitely agree with you. We cannot manipulate God with our words, with our actions. Uh, we can't manipulate God by any means. You know, praying in the name of uh, of Jesus, praying in Jesus' name, means willing what Jesus would will and desiring what Jesus would desire. And Jesus' desire was to glorify God in all things. So I think if you're doing that in your prayers, and that's what's coming out of your heart, I think uh, that is what is pleasing to God. But certainly, you know, adding anything to your prayer or, uh, you know, anything, you know, that you, you know, any affirmations that you utter, you know, there are people that think that, you know, that your words are vessels of power. And I totally disagree with that on a spiritual level anyway. But, uh, you know, it's certainly possible to be brainwashed by words. I don't know. Anyway. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope that this was as fun for you as it was for me. And Christina, thank you again for reading for me. I like listening to your voice a lot more than I like listening to mine. But anyway, God bless you guys. I will see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus.